Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Chris Smith and Kat Arney will be bringing us the latest science news. We'll be hearing how high doses of aspirin may have contributed to the death toll of the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. Well, based on what we know about the percentage of people who get fluid in their lungs when they take really high doses of aspirin, this could have affected up to about 1 in 30 people treated with aspirin. And when you add up how many thousands of people died from the flu at that time, that's quite a significant number that might have actually died due to aspirin. And how a recession could be good for your health. A new study compares mortality in times of recession versus times of wealth. If you look at those dates, you find that the mortality rate, the overall number of people dying in the population, was actually a lot higher. It peaked in the years when the economy was doing really well. Then you say, well, when were the depressions? When was the economy in recession? And what do you think happened to the mortality rate? Well, at exactly those dates, it was at its all-time low. Plus a genetic switch for making brain cells, how the Earth's vibration can be used to map its interior, and we hear what's been happening at the National Cancer Research Institute's annual conference. That's all on the way. To a legacy of 1900 or thereabouts, the world's most popular painkiller, and something that came shortly after it, Cat, the world's perhaps most unpopular infection, certainly at the moment, the flu. What can you tell us about this? Yes, those little white pills of aspirin have been popped by millions of people since the drug came onto the market back in 1899. And today around 40,000 tonnes of aspirin are sold every year around the world. But a new paper published in the journal Clinical Infectious Diseases suggests that misuse of aspirin to relieve the symptoms of flu could actually do more harm than good, at least in the case of the 1918 flu pandemic. So rather worrying, given how many people actually take aspirin. It's a very popular drug. Um, current fears over H1N1 are still out there, of course. What's the story here? Well, this is work from Karen Starko in California, and she thinks that very high doses of aspirin that were given to some patients during the flu pandemic in 1918 and 1919, I mean, we're talking big doses, up to 30 grams a day, might have caused dangerous side effects such as a buildup of fluid in the lungs. Now, in turn, this would contribute to the deadly effects of the flu and increase the chances of lung infections. Now, we do know that doses this high can cause these kind of side effects, and we see this in people who have aspirin poisoning. Um, and adding to this evidence, the US Surgeon General recommended the use of aspirin for flu just before a massive spike in flu deaths back in 1918. Indeed, and to put that in perspective, you can take one gram of flu, uh, one gram of flu, one gram of aspirin every four hours or so. So that's six grams per day maximum you should take. This is a dose, of course, perhaps five times higher than that. So how many people would have been affected by this misadvice? Well, based on what we know about the percentage of people who get fluid in their lungs when they take really high doses of aspirin, this could have affected up to about 1 in 30 people treated with aspirin. And when you add up how many thousands of people died from the flu at that time, that's quite a significant number that might have actually died due to aspirin. And what's more, Starko thinks that this unusually high number of deaths um, was seen in young people. So maybe these uh, young people who normally fight off the flu, some of their deaths might have been due to aspirin use maybe rather than the flu. And so what does this mean actually today in contemporary terms as we're sort of sitting here in the Northern Hemisphere waiting for the flu season to come back and potentially a resurgence of, of H1N1 swine flu? Well, hopefully we're more sensible than taking 30 grams of aspirin a day. And back in the early 20th century, aspirin was such a new drug, doctors 
didn't really know how to use it. They thought maybe more was better. And it was also very pushed by pharmaceutical companies because the doctors didn't really have anything to do. So they just thought, well, we'll give people this drug. You know, hopefully it might work. Today, we do know much more about aspirin and some of the really complex ways it affects the body. But we do need to take this as a warning from history not to get carried away with uh, super high doses of drugs. Indeed. So there's everything to play for, though. We hope, we're hopefully in a better position than we were about 100 years ago. Well, look, sticking with history and, and also things that might kill you, the Conservative uh, Health Minister, Shadow Health Secretary Andrew Lansley, got himself in a bit of hot water earlier this year when he said, don't worry, Britain might be facing the worst credit crisis we've had in, in years, but recessions are actually good for your health. And people shot him down for it. So it's a very naughty thing to say. You shouldn't have come out with that. But the reality is that there is evidence that science supports the statement having a recession does appear to be good for you, believe it or not. There's a paper actually in the journal PNAS this week that uh, examines this in slightly more detail and confirms the suggestion that recessions are good for your health. This is Jose Tapia Granados and Anna Diaz-Rue. Uh, she's at, and he, uh, both at the University of Michigan. And what they've done is look at the US Great Depression. This was um, a very, very severe financial crash which happened in the 1930s. The Wall Street, Wall Street Stock Exchange collapsed. People lost a fortune uh, at one time. About one person in two in some places had no job in America and the average unemployment rate was running at about 25%. So a very severe crash. Uh, one would therefore expect that people are going to be pretty depressed around that time and therefore if we're going to see peaks in mortality, it's going to be around then. Well, they said, let's examine the figures. Let's go back to 1920, look at what the economy is doing and pair that with mortality data. So they went back to 1920 and they looked at the how the economy was doing in 1923, 1926, 1929 and then 1936 to 1937. Those are all years when there was a big financial boom. The economy surged, people made a lot of money, but... If you look at those dates, you find that the mortality rate, the overall number of people dying in the population, was actually a lot higher on those years. It peaked in the years when the economy was doing really well. Then you say, well, when were the depressions? When was the economy in recession? Well, in 1921, there was a recession. In 1930 to 1933, there was a recession. And in 1938, there was a recession. And what do you think happened to the mortality rates? Well, at exactly those dates, it was at its all-time low. So in, although there was a general trend of improve, improved living conditions over this time, whenever the recession was in or the economy was doing really badly, people actually lived longer. So tell me, Chris, how does this actually work? How can a recession affect your health? What's going on? Well, some people have suggested that this could be a lag effect. In other words, you get sick during the uh, depression, and then it takes a few years for you to die. And therefore, it's not till the economy is doing really well again that then there's the effect of the previous recession and then lots of people die. This can't be right, though, the researchers argue, because the dates just don't add up for a start because there, there are variable distances in time between when there was a boom and a bust and then when there was the number of people either living longer or living less long. It just doesn't fit statistically. And the other point is that, and this is the one that they say is much more likely to be the case, when we're in a boom and the economy is doing very well, actually there's a lot less that's good for you going on. People have more money to spend on alcohol and cigarettes, so the consumption of things that are bad for your health goes up. Also, when industry is booming, there's more pollution around, there's more traffic on the roads, there are more industrial accidents, there's more migration. People get paid a lucrative amount of money to jet off somewhere else leave their family behind so they get very socially isolated and this in turn has an impact on health. And so it looks like, actually paradoxically, when uh, we're in recession, in fact, people do live longer. 
crazy. I'll be really, uh, really interested to see the effects of this current recession, because for me, it's miserable. Anyway, moving on to a story about the brain. Now, wouldn't it be absolutely fantastic if we could just flick a genetic switch and increase the number of brain cells we have? I would love that. But it would be bad news if this production line ran out of control, because then you would end up with a brain tumour. And now researchers in the US have tracked down the gene responsible for maintaining this tricky balance, making sure we grow enough new nerve cells, but not so many that things get out of hand. Which sounds really cool. Um, We actually have quite a lot of um, individuals who have quite a lot of brain cells on their own. They do quite well at making them. Um, So what do these genes actually do? Well, this is research from William Snyder at the University of North Carolina. Now, he and his team discovered that a gene called GSK3 controls the signals that determine how many nerve cells we have in our brain. Now, GSK, GSK3 is a kinase. This is an enzyme. It sticks little molecular tags onto other proteins, switching them on or off to send signals in the cell. And the team have just published their results in the journal Nature Neuroscience. So how do they, they find this sort of brain cell on switch? Well, the researchers used genetic engineering to create mice whose GSK3 gene could be removed at a very specific time during the development of the mouse embryo. Now, this was at a time when a type of brain cell called a radial progenitor is just being made. And these stem cells produced the bulk of the nerve cells in the brain. And the researchers found that removing GSK3 at this crucial time meant that the progenitor cells were kind of locked into a pattern of constant proliferation. They were churning out endless new stem cells rather than the these becoming mature neurons. So if you take away this GS, uh, GSK3, that means you end up with, what, too many immature brain cells. So how can you turn those into an abundance of mature neurons, nerve cells? Well, that's the next step the researchers are really keen to take. They want to find out if adding this GSK3 back into the brain after a big burst of proliferation will make these new stem cells mature. They think if they can get this to work, they could make mice with three to four times as many neurons as normal mice. So maybe by manipulating GSK, uh, GSK3 levels one day, we could increase our brain capacity. Uh, Snyder describes it as dialing up or down the number of neurons that are generated in the brain. But the other potentially important thing is that GSK3 has also recently been fingered for a role in a number of psychiatric illnesses, including schizophrenia, depression and bipolar disorder. And lithium, a common treatment for bipolar disorder, works by shutting down GSK3. So crucially, the researchers suggest that perhaps doctors should avoid giving drugs like lithium to younger children whose brains uh, might still be growing in case it does lead to problems of overgrowth with cells, which could potentially maybe lead to cancer. But obviously, this does need more research. Indeed, what an intriguing finding, though, because, of course, one thing that unites many of these psychiatric conditions is that they don't kick in until later in life. And that would be consistent with the brain making more neurons a long time and then miswiring them in to different parts of the brain, perhaps creating abnormal pathways connecting bits of the brain that that perhaps shouldn't be connected. But certainly an interesting finding. Thank you for that, Kat. Now, I mentioned in the beginning that uh, also this week scientists have made a breakthrough when it comes to seeing what lies hidden beneath our feet. And we're not just talking about getting your shovel out and digging into the nearest field. I'm talking about what lies hundreds of kilometres underground, basically the, the interior anatomy of our planet. And scientists have discovered how to use the Earth's natural hum. Yes, the planet has a hum because it doesn't know the words. No, I'm just joking. It has a hum because the planet is vibrating. And it's vibrating because various things such as atmospheric disturbances and also the crashing of big waves and swells in the ocean 
cause deformations on the ocean floor, and these vibrate and resonate through the planet. The hum is very, very low frequency, 0.01 hertz. So in other words, to complete one single wave, it takes over 100 seconds, maybe as long as 400 seconds for one of these resonances to go through. And these very long wavelength waves propagate through the planet's interior. And as they go through different structures, they can get changed. And the pattern of those changes or the effect that the uh, changes have on the propagation of these waves can be sampled by recording the vibrations from the surface of the Earth and then it can be used to build up a picture of what's inside the planet. Now scientists have done this in the past with vibrations from things like earthquakes but the problem is that you, with earthquakes, are limited to when the earthquake's actually happening. So maybe there's a better way of doing this on the longer term. And three scientists, led by Kiwamu Nishida, who's a researcher at the University of Tokyo, have got a paper in Science this week where they've done just that. They've used this natural hum of the Earth, and by taking the recordings from 1986 through to 2003 of background hum from 54 seismic stations, these are just recording stations around the Earth's surface, they have managed to see how these waves can be used to build up a picture of what's inside the Earth. So the principle is very simple. What you do is record the, the sound waves, and because they're very random, it's very easy to find simple signature sounds that can be followed all around the Earth. You then record them from various places on the Earth's surface, and you use that to build up a picture of what different geological structures lie deep underground, up to distances of about 500 kilometres. So it goes right down deep inside the planet. So an incredible piece of work, really, this. And why this is so valuable, they say, is that there are some planets, like Mars, for example, which you might not be able to measure earthquakes over a period of time, but you could use disturbances in the Martian atmosphere, which are pummeling the surface of the planet, to do the same trick, and this would tell you what's going on inside the planet. So a wonderful piece of work which tells you an enormous amount, not just about our own planet, but perhaps other worlds too. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Also this week, Kat Arney has been at the National Cancer Research Institute's annual conference in Birmingham. She explained to Chris what the conference is about and how it shines a light on new areas in cancer research. Yes, well, this is a conference that's organised by the National Cancer Research Institute, the NCRI, which is kind of a virtual institute. They're an umbrella that brings together all the funders of cancer research in the UK. So organisations like Cancer Research UK, Leukaemia Research, um, some pharmaceutical companies, basically to make sure that Everyone is is doing cancer research in a good way, um, not missing any areas and not duplicating too much work. So it's really it was set up a few years ago to address the fact that, you know, people didn't really know what was going on in, in other labs. So basically, this is a conference where cancer researchers from all over the UK, from all over the world, get together to talk about the latest results, um, to discuss, set up collaborations. And not only are scientists here, but there's doctors, nurses and also patient groups here as well. So it's really diverse range of people. Now every year when you go to the NCRI conference you come back with some uh, new hot kid on the biological block. So what are the hot topics in, in cancer research this year? Well, there's just been a talk this afternoon um, by a chap called Larry Norton, who's from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. And it was really, really interesting. Basically, um, when you think about cancer that starts to spread, there's this idea that there's a, a starting tumour and cancer cells go off around the body and find new places to go, such as the lungs, the liver, and they start new tumours. His idea is that while a cancer is growing, 
um, kind of stem cells, uh, spreading cells. They, they go off, they travel around the body, and then they come back to the original tumour and they start growing there. So this idea of self-seeding. Um, and what he's proposing is that, say, you, you treat this original tumour, you, you get rid of it with surgery, with radiotherapy, with chemotherapy. There are still these cells out travelling in the body like the prodigal son, and they try to come back, but there's no original tumour there. And you think, well, I shall go somewhere else. And then they go and start growing in the lungs, in the liver and in the brain. So by chopping out the cancer, paradoxically, the primary tumour, we, we could be encouraging the process of spread. Well, that's basically the idea. And his, well, his ideas are, are really very new. And at the moment, he's only got research in, in mouse models that might support this. But it's certainly an intriguing idea. And he's he's got all sorts of ideas for how you might use this to treat cancer. For example, um, if you could... So basically, the idea that the original tumour is acting like a kind of a sponge absorbing back in these cancer cells. So could we make some kind of fake sponge that would then mop up the cells that have started spreading can we find out the signals that they're giving out and and try and mimic them or block them that might stop cancer cells spreading and he's designing some possibly quite counterintuitive regimes of different drugs you might give that would actually help to stop this process and treat cancer more effectively so there's some really exciting work to be done in the future there i think Kat Arney talking to chris smith about the exciting prospects discussed at the ncri's annual conference in birmingham but that's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler. As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another roundup of science news next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs>